And we're back for another episode of Startup Hustle, a podcast for entrepreneurs by entrepreneurs. If you want to start, own, or build a business, then you're in the right place. We bring you the real truth about what it's like to take something from concept to launch, from growth, innovation, experience, failing, or winning big, we've got you covered. So let's get down to business with another episode of Startup Hustle, brought to you by Fullscale.io. All right, friends, thank you so much for joining us for yet another episode of Startup Hustle. I am your host, Lauren Conaway, founder and CEO of Innovate Her KC. Want to remind you, we are very, very excited that today's episode of Startup Hustle is sponsored by Fullscale.io, helping you build a software team quickly and affordably. Now, listeners, we have with us today Laura Briggs, and Laura is something of a freelancing phenom. She's founder and CEO of The Freelancing Coach, and she's author of several books and just an all-around expert in, in freelancing and business, and we're really, really excited to have her here today to pick her brain. Laura, thank you so much for being here with us on the show. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, I always love hearing about that. It, it makes me so happy because I, I always get so jazzed when we <laughs> when we record these things, you know, because I, I get to talk to awesome ladies, you know, like it's amazing that that's like my job description. Love it. Um, so, so tell us this. Let's go ahead and hop right in. Let's get right to it. So tell us, how did you come to do what you do? How, how did you get here? What's your what's your story? What's your journey? Well, I think like a fair number of entrepreneurs, it starts with failure at something else. Um, so I used to be a seventh grade geography and history teacher in Baltimore City Public Schools. I was not a good teacher. Um, I came up with really great creative lesson plans, but classroom management was just not a thing I was good at. I felt like that was a battle I could not fight every day to keep 35 students in their seats focused for 70 minutes at a time. It was just a constant battle. And so year one of being a teacher, I was like, I can't do this. There's no way I will hit 20 or 30 years and be able to retire with this career. So I started looking for other things that I might be able to do. I thought I've had people tell me that they like my writing. Maybe that's something I could hone into a skill. So I started my freelance business as a side hustle. And that was in 2012. I did it as a side hustle for about a year. And then I went full-time after that point. And it's just really cool. It's opened so many different doors. I've gotten to work with amazing companies. I've worked with Microsoft as a project manager and TrueCar. And I've worked on projects helping people publish books and all kinds of cool stuff. But it's really opened a lot of other doors for me, including now I also coach freelancers and I run a nonprofit that teaches military spouses how to break into freelancing so that they can have a remote career that follows them from base to base as they move with their partners. That, that is amazing. And see, I didn't actually know that I'm going to learn so much. <laughs> uh, so, so one of the things that, that I love about what you just said is, is you, you mentioned a, an ability to be self-aware, you know, you were like, yeah, I was really good at this, but not so good at this. And yeah. so you found it, you found a workable solution. And I think that's really cool. Um, so, so talk to us a little bit about what that process was like, like when you came to that realization, was it disappointing? Did you have to kind of come to grips or was it a difficult, difficult choice? Yeah, I think I knew going in 
that like any first year teacher is going to struggle tremendously. Right. And I only had six weeks of training. I did a program that was very much like teach for America, but it was specific to Baltimore city. And so you go in with like wide, bright eyes and like all these great things that you think you're going to do. And then the reality of what it's like to be a teacher and especially to be a modern teacher, what we ask out of educators today is absolutely crazy. And I just really wasn't prepared. And so I worked really hard on my lesson plans. That was my pride and joy. I loved actually teaching the students. I loved when we got to do something, you know, creative that brought out, you know, their ability to learn new things and to develop critical thinking skills. But I just knew from day one, like, I was just not going to be the good disciplinarian. I, I felt like I shouldn't and couldn't stop class for the one or two students that were acting crazy and like, let that be the focus. And that clearly wasn't like the right approach with what the school wanted. And so it was kind of a battle from day one. It was really hard to come to terms with that. I felt like I was not just letting myself down, but I was letting my students down. I was choosing to walk away from that position and especially students in really high needs districts and schools, they're kind of used to people giving up on them. And so there was a really hard realization to just kind of be like, I have to do this for myself because it just wasn't workable. But it was, it was also the fact that my boyfriend at the time, now my husband was in the Navy and I knew we were going to move within a year. And so me staying there another year. It was like, this isn't going to be realistic either. Like I'm really unhappy. I'm absolutely exhausted. And there's huge parts of this job that I am just not good at and don't even have the desire or passion to get good at. And so it was a, it was a hard process. I took another job when I left, um, actually my old boss where I'd worked before I became a teacher said, Hey, we have a new position. We'll wait for you to finish the school year. We'll, we'll pay you more money than your previous position. And I, I took it because I, I knew I needed a year to figure out my life. I was like, oh, great. I'm, I was in a PhD program at the time. I was, I was working towards becoming a professional educator. And so coming to terms with not working in education anymore, I'm like, I need time to figure out what my next step in is. And freelancing was very much like a fill the gap, like extra way to make money, like try out new skills while I'm figuring out what to do with my life. Yes, I, I I love that that is the the kind of answer that you came to, and I honestly think that that most successful, awesome enterprises like they they often start by accident or they start by you know fortuitous happenstance where all of the stars were aligned and you just kind of figured out you had your aha moment that you know this is my path forward this is what i want to do so so i love that you were able to do that um real quick side note i i do want to acknowledge a couple of things that you said first of all um you know the fact that teachers today um we sure do ask a lot of them particularly in the advent of covid-19 in this coronavirus society that we live in um, but I also wanted to thank you for your service as a military spouse. That is a really difficult, that, that, that's a difficult gig you have. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. you know, thank you for, <laughs> for doing that and, and for helping other military spouses acclimate and find a way to make money. Um, that's really incredible. I yeah. Love it. It's a huge passion of mine for sure. Yeah. Well, and I, I love that you come to it through kind of your own personal lens. Like this is my story and I want to share it with others. Yeah. Um, so, so talk to us, talk to us a little bit about um, what it was like in the early days of being a freelancer. I, I love that you viewed it as an opportunity just to learn. Mm -hmm. 
Well, yeah, I had no idea what I was doing. And so I was trying a lot of things when I first got started because I couldn't quite figure out, well, how are other people finding clients and how much work do I really need to do? And do I really need a website? I mean, any entrepreneur has to answer so many questions about when you reach that point of feeling like you're ready to start. And in hindsight, I now see a lot of new entrepreneurs and freelancers specifically, they wait to get started. And I think it's a big mistake because you're like, well, I'm going to wait till I finish this one online course or until I get a certain degree or until I feel like I have my website up and running. And my only regret about my freelance business is that I didn't discover it and start it sooner because it would have been a huge help when I was in graduate school and flat broke trying to get my master's degree. It would have been great to get those experiences and come to that learning curve then so that when I left and I was ready to go be a professional and have a career that I already had some of those skills under my belt. But unfortunately, that's just, you know, not always how it happens. So for me, the early days were a lot of trial and error. I made a ton of mistakes. I worked with just about anyone who was interested in working with me. And that's a big mistake when you're a service provider. It's one of the most important things about scaling is choosing who you work with and saying no to the right people. Um, but I got a lot of great experience. I discovered freelance skills that I really liked doing. I discovered things I didn't like doing. I realized I don't like writing about software and that's okay. Like to know that and to say, oh, I will never do a project like that again, because it just doesn't appeal to me. So I, I learned a tremendous amount in those early days. And I had to be really specific with my time, right? Because I was working full time and I was still in grad school at night. So I had maybe eight to 10 hours per week, absolute maximum to get things done. And it really forced me to be choosy with my time and not like procrastinate or drag things out. Yeah. Well, so, so I'm really interested in something that, that you said in there and you were talking about the fact, basically you were talking about firing clients and, mm -hmm. you know, being, being very selective in who you work with. Can you talk to us a little bit about your criteria for the ideal client or how you kind of uh, winnow that down for yourself? I think what's so cool about entrepreneurship and working for yourself is that you get to define what that is. So the job that I had during the day, for example, uh, was very much of the mentality of the customer is always right. And if someone is screaming at you over the phone, like you just need to do your best to stay calm and apologize to them, even if it's not your fault. I knew going into business for myself, I didn't want to do that. I don't believe the customer is always right. Sometimes people are just rude and it's okay to decide not to work with them. People who don't pay on time, it's okay to say like, once that happens, that's a no-go for me moving forward. So um, for me, an ideal client is someone who's very easy to work with. They're pleasant to work with. They pay on time. Um, they're not overly communicative, like they don't feel like they need to text you every day or have a phone call every single week. That just doesn't work with my schedule. So for me, I really love hands-off clients, but I also love clients that provide you with projects that keep you interested. That's another important point where a lot of people struggle is, well, I'm getting paid for this, so I should keep doing it. And it's like, no, at some point, if you're not enjoying the project or if it feels like a chore to do it or you're procrastinating, pay attention to that because that's a sign that the subject or the structure of your working relationship is no longer functioning for you. And those are relationships that you should end, not just for yourself, but if you're not excited about working on something, you're not giving the client the best experience either. And so there may be somebody else out there who does show up excited to work on those projects and, and you should kind of allow them the opportunity to do that.
Yeah, absolutely. Well, and so so one of the things that I have heard time and time again, and I've actually experienced um, as a freelancer myself, is um, the fact that often freelancers don't really know how to value themselves. Mm -hmm. Like, how do you determine your price point and determine the value of the work that you are giving? So, so talk to us a little bit about that. What's a good way to approach that? I think the best way to start is to think about a reasonable hourly rate that you would be comfortable with and then adjust up or down from there. You probably would rarely ever adjust down, right? But um, think about like what an entry level rate would be. Do some research perhaps on sites like Upwork. Look at other people's profiles, see what they have their rates listed at. Do a little bit of research on that. Um, you'll get numbers all across the board, by the way. You'll see people who charge $20 an hour and they're fine with that. And you'll see people who charge $200 an hour and looking for ways to push that up. So you'll get lots of different data points, but I like to start with that and then go, is there anything else that should cause me to push my rate up? Do I have an advanced degree? Have I finished an online certification? Am I maybe new to freelancing, but the last company I worked at was Google or Facebook. And so I come to the table with inside knowledge about technology and software and best practices of these major companies. Use that information to kind of push that hourly rate up. And then some of it is just testing it, right? Like do a couple of projects. And then when you're finished with them, do you feel like you were paid fairly? So don't sign a six month contract with someone. Don't take a 50 hour contract at $25 an hour. Do a couple of small jobs that have a really clear beginning and end point. And that will give you a couple of important pieces of data. One of which is, do you feel like you're being paid well? And another one is, how long does it take you to do certain tasks? So for me as a writer, when I first got started, I was like, I have no idea how long it's going to take me to write a 500 word blog. Like I've never done that before and I'm sure I'll get faster. So how on earth do I price that? And that's, that's how I started. And I would track myself as I did these first few projects and go, okay, that actually took me like three hours. So I need to account for the back and forth and the revisions with the client in my process and in my quote too. And so you'll learn some of it. You won't get it right the first time around. So just don't lock yourself into something where you feel like you have, you've promised the client that you only work at this lower rate. Yeah. Well, and in, in uh, particularly in the beginning, like there there's a time when you can't really penalize the client for the for your learning curve. So like if it's mm -hmm. the first few times that you do something, you know, kind of figuring that out and it, I mean eventually you're going to reach the point where you get speedy when you, you know, do it time and time again. But I think allowing for for that with your with your clients, I think that that's a really difficult thing to do. Um so so talk to us about, about that tracking of time and how you how you integrate that into your work because I, I that is just so crucial to what you do mm -hmm. um not just determine like to to figure out like project estimating and things like that talk to us a little bit about that yeah so I think you can start that process as early on as tracking your time while you create your work samples. So any creative professional that is delivering some type of a service needs either an example of what they do. Um, so great examples of that are like graphic designers, writers, website designers. You have an actual output, a thing that you can show to clients as an example of your style. It's a little trickier for people like virtual assistants and project managers where you might not necessarily have a work sample, but you'd want some practice experience where you can talk about things you've done on the job. So 
I like to have a handful of work samples. They should be indicative of the different types of work that you primarily want to sell to clients. So I have different writing samples. I have academic ones. I have business ones. I have ones that are specific to legal because that's my niche. And so that is your first chance to say, how long does it take me to come up with the entire finished product from beginning to end? And then kind of think about if you're, if you were giving this sample to an actual client, how much time would you need to make revisions? Revisions would look totally different kind of based on uh, the size of the project. So revising a logo as a graphic designer might take you a couple of minutes or a couple of hours. But if you're ghostwriting somebody's 50,000 word book, that's going to be much more involved. And so literally just use a time tracker like Toggle and turn it on when you're working on the project and know that when you first start, you will be a lot slower. You will develop systems and processes to help you be faster in the future, but it's a really good place to start. And I like to give clients ranges rather than saying, this is going to take me exactly one hour and 10 minutes. I like to say, I'm estimating between one and three hours. Um, I can check in with you at the two hour mark if you're comfortable with that for our very first project working together. Yeah, that's great. That That is so helpful. I, I love the idea of using ranges because I, I just know that one of the biggest sticking points for me was always that estimation of time because you just, you don't know what you don't know before you hop into something sometimes. Um, so so I love that you've done that. So talk to me, one of the things that, that I have learned um, or one of the things that happened to me on a pretty frequent basis was somebody coming to me and saying, oh, you know, you're, you're offering this amount of work. Why don't you do this for exposure or to build your portfolio? Like that happened just a ton in early days. How do you feel about that? I think there are times when you can use it to your favor, but you have to be very specific about where you allow that to happen and what the return credibility to you is. So let's say that you're a writer and like we we do this with the writers in our nonprofit. I encourage them to pitch a number of different military facing and military family publications. Some of them might not pay the best or they might not pay at all. But the difference is they might give the writer a byline. And so I'll say, you know, that is going to speak volumes. If you if you write one article for them and there's a very clear beginning and end point to it and you're going to get a byline and you can use that as a work sample going forward, that is one case in which I might allow that to happen. But nine times out of 10, when someone says you're going to get great exposure, you're not right. Because most of the places where you do get good exposure, they're not going to use that as a selling point. So I'm an ongoing contributor to entrepreneur.com. I don't get paid to do that, but it, it truly is great exposure because that's also my publishing house. And so it's linked in with all my books and only helps to like further the market that I'm trying to sell books to. Um, but they don't make that as a case of like, oh, you're going to get great exposure. Like I know that. So most places um, are really trying to take advantage of you when, when they do that. So if you do take on a project, I encourage it to be a small project. It could be for something like a nonprofit or a business that you want to support that's trying to get their feet off the ground, but it should be something that's really small. You shouldn't say like, oh, I'll design your entire website for you. No, you might say, I'll design a simple three-page website for you on Squarespace. That's what I can offer as an initial project. The trade-off is that 
I'm going to dr- drive people to that website and say that I built it. So like it needs to be in the footer that my company built it. You need to be comfortable with me sharing the URL as the designer of the site. So try to work in benefits for you as well and and keep it really small and to the point so that the client doesn't say, oh, well, you said you'd build our website. Like we want 50 different pages on it. We want to customize blog design. We want to embed all these YouTube videos. And then you're like, well, I didn't agree to do all that work. If you weren't clear, the client might think you did agree to it. So be very clear about what your quote unquote exposure packages include. Yeah. All right. All right. I love that. Um, so, so tell me this, I'm going to switch gears on you a little bit because I, I just, I, am so excited to hear you talking about these things because these are all things that I have kind of struggled with. And I know that our listeners have struggled with, I'm sure of their, their freelancing. Um, but one of the things that I really had a hard time with, particularly in the early days was that work-life balance that everybody talks about. And so I, you know, talk to us about, you know, setting boundaries or the tips and tricks that you use to, to, um, create time for yourself and make sure that, you know, when, when you're freelancing, often you're doing it from home and there's just very little demarcation between work life and private life. Mm -hmm. Um, so what does that look like so that you can kind of save your sanity? So this is my biggest ongoing struggle. And I feel like the sooner that you can, get a handle on this, the easier it will be for you as you scale. Because if you start with bad habits, those bad habits are going to follow you. So it's good to try to be aware of it from the beginning. Um, One of the tips that I got, I recently interviewed Jason Freed, the CEO and founder of Basecamp. And I talked to him about this because I was like, I'm asking this selfishly because I need help figuring out how to do this. And he was like, you know, close your computer and disconnect it from the internet at the end of the day and like shut, like if you have a physical office, whether it's in your home or, you know, somewhere else, treat it like you would your job, right? Like when you work in an office outside the home, you leave at the end of the day and you, you shut the door and you lock it and you power down your computer. So like have have a powering down system that you um, use. And then one of the other tips that he gave me was don't allow yourself to use your computer after work hours for any work related stuff, like use another device. And so for me, that's my iPad. And sometimes I'm like, I really need to add this to my project management software before I forget. And I'm willing to go through it, but because it isn't a computer and it doesn't have a keyboard, it's very annoying to use. So I will catch myself. Like, do I really like, is this really so important that I want to fight with my iPad to try to like type something out, like send an email? Probably not. And so that has helped me a lot. Um, I also have a business cell phone and a personal cell phone. I've had that for years. That was one of the first ways. Um, And so I actually shut the business cell phone off. Like it is, so the only people who can reach me on the other cell phone are friends and family. There's a reason that they're calling. And it really helps me like, do I need the same thing? Like, do I need to turn on my phone? Is there a real reason for this phone to even be on and connected right now? Probably not. Um, so that's that's a big one for me. And just trying to get myself out of my own inbox. I have virtual assistants who help me sort that out and try to keep me away from all of my own emails because that in and of itself can totally be a black hole. <laughs> sure, absolutely. Uh, so, so just real talk, have you ever given your personal cell phone number to a client? In the very beginning, that's how this whole business phone was born. Because like, you know, your clients will say, oh, let's do a phone call together, or let me just text you something quick. 
And I was like, oh, this is not going to work. Like text at 10 o'clock at night. Like if, if I hear my phone go off, like I'm assuming that's my mom and there's something wrong. Right? <laughs> so like I would go right. run and look at it. So that's actually how this whole thing with the second cell phone even started. I was like, I've got to have a business line because they were driving me crazy. And so there's a part of you that you have to train your clients, even using autoresponders or I, uh, sometimes I have in my email signature, like my office business hours are eight to four central. And so it's like, that's there to, for me to keep myself accountable. Cause I see that every time I send an email, but I also want my clients to see that if you email me at eight o'clock at night, it doesn't even matter if I am online, I'm going to try to respect that boundary of not replying to it at that point. So yes, my own bad habits are what got me to this point of like being stricter about that. I told I, I like every single time you say something, I'm just like, I'm vibrating with how much I understand. What you're saying. I'm like, I get it. I totally get it. Yeah. Uh, so, so I, I, I'm going to switch tax on you again, because okay. that's what I like to do. I just like to keep you on your toes. Uh, so, so tell me, we're, we're going to start with the bad, I think. In your opinion, what is the hardest thing about being a freelancer? I think it's that a lot of people don't understand what you do. So there's, for some reason, there's still a lot of negative connotations around freelancing. There's like this belief that you're doing it because you couldn't get a job or you have, you're pursuing this like creative passion and it's irresponsible of you to do that. And it's always weird when I encounter people who do think that way. Uh, a lot of people in traditional education and higher education definitely still do think that way. They don't view it as a real career. And that's always very bizarre to me because it's like completely counter to like all the freelancers that I know. Many of them are doing way better for themselves and learning more and getting paid a better rate and everything. Um, but yeah, just that weird like stigma against freelancing. Every time I meet someone who um, like says one of those kinds of statements, I'm like, really? That's still a thing? Like there's still people who think that this is like for the, for the broke person, like creative person that can't land another job. So yeah, that one's ongoing frustrating for me. <laughs> Yeah, I, I I totally hear you on that. And it's it's crazy because often when you're a freelancer, you're actually you're you're having to utilize more skills because right. you're you're responsible for like, you know, invoicing your clients and managing that piece of the process. And you're you're responsible for, you know, balancing the books. I, I it sounds like you've got some VAs and some support, but particularly in early days, you're doing a little bit of everything or sometimes a lot of everything. And so there's there's some mad respect that needs to come with with being a freelancer. So I, I love that you just said that. Um, now let's talk about the good. What is the best thing about being a freelancer? I really think it's um, the opportunity to get to decide who you work with. When you work with people that you really like, you bring that enthusiasm to their projects. And I do like some PR work and some marketing for nonfiction book authors. And they're all just awesome people, right? Like they're all just incredible yeah. people who have a great story to tell. And so I feel like that makes it so much more genuine when, when I'm pitching them to a publication or a podcast. That's because I really believe in this person. And likewise, if I get on the phone with someone and I don't agree with their mission or their personality just seems too abrasive to work with, being able to say no is like, it's so much easier when your workday is stacked with clients and projects that you're excited about. 
Yeah, I love that. Well, and I, I, I think one of the things that you and I kind of talked about on the front end before we started recording was the fact that like being your own boss is is really freeing. It's a really fantastic thing to be able to do. I mean, it, it's it's terrifying. Like if you're not if you are a solopreneur and you're not scared, then there's something wrong. Mm-hmm. But it's it's a thrilling kind of fear because you own your destiny, you know. And I I think that that was one of my my favorite pieces of it. Um, so so I love that. Um, you know, I do. Before we get too much further along, you you've referenced it a couple of times. We've circled around the conversation, but I do want to give you the opportunity to plug yourself a little bit. Talk to us about your books. Yeah, my first book is very specific to freelance writers. It isn't the book I originally pitched to the publisher. My agent was actually shopping what is my second book at the time. And um, Entrepreneur Press came back and was like, you know, Laura's kind of an unknown, like she's a, this would be a debut book for her. So like we have this other book in our lineup that really needs to be written. Would she be interested in doing this beginner book on freelance writing first? And in a way, like my agent and I were like, should we do this? Like, is this the right route? Cause this isn't the book we originally like were pitching. And we decided to kind of use it as like a, a case study, get my feet wet, see how this whole process works and hopefully knock it out of the park so that it would be an easy yes for the publisher to work with me again. And thankfully it did work out that way. So my second book is coming out in October of 2020. It's called Six Figure Freelancer and it is very much geared towards all different kinds of freelancers. So it's not specific to writers, but it's for those that have been in business for a while and are looking to scale. It's really the mindset, the marketing, the client management, like all of the things that lead into that. So I've coached about 35 six-figure freelancers in the last couple of years, and then 19 of them um, contributed to the book as well. And so it's not, that was one thing I wanted to be really conscious of with the second book is I wanted it not just to be me saying, you should go do this. This is what I did, but I wanted to bring in those other voices to kind of say like, this is how they ad- adapted it for themselves. So like I run a, a solo freelance business, meaning I don't work with subcontractors, but I brought in some freelancers who run an agency model to speak to like why they went that route and how they make it work. And then my third book will be specific to the craft of writing. And I'm finishing a manuscript now about um, how to break in as a virtual assistant. And so that's very much my like super niche is like talking about starting a freelance side hustle, growing it, making it really work for you rather than like it shaping the rest of your life, right? It's like, how do you make your business fit into what you want out of your life? Yeah. I love that. And I, I have to tell you, I'm always so super impressed when, when people come to me and they're like, Oh, I've written a book. I've written two books, three books, because the, the, it, that takes a lot of discipline. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and I really admire that. Where, where can you find your book? Uh, so you can find it anywhere that books are sold. We have, um, they're on Amazon. It's a Kindle version. There's an audiobook version for the first one. Um, and the, the second book is available for pre-order right now as we're recording this episode. So it's definitely, it's definitely out there. <laughs> Amazing. I love it so much. Um, so, so I'm going to ask you a question now and we're going to go a little philosophical on this. Somebody actually asked me this on a, like it was on, I was on a, I was talking to a group, um, on zoom last week actually. And they asked me this question and I I have to tell you, like, I felt vastly underqualified and I feel like you're going to come up with a much better answer than I ever did. Uh, and, and so I'm just really curious to hear your response, but 
do you think the gig economy is the future of work? I think it is 50% the future of work. In my opinion, there are two trends that define the future of work and it's remote and it's the rise of the freelancer. So in my um, TEDx talk about freelancing, I kind of close with this idea of like the freelance revolution is here. Like, are you going to join it? And I think that there's a huge potential for people to have freelancing as a side hustle or as a career. I don't think you have to choose either or. I have gone back and forth. I've had full-time jobs and balanced freelancing and done just freelancing and then scaled it back down. And so there's so much flexibility there. But I think like remote work, in my opinion, was the future of work before even the pandemic happened. And I think the pandemic has just highlighted how possible it is for a lot of companies to go mostly remote or to have a good portion of their workforce that is. So I, I think the theme that those two things have together is location independent talent. It really opens up the door for companies to say, I need to hire a web developer. I want to hire the best web developer for my project given the parameters that I have. That doesn't mean that that person lives in my same zip code and comes into a physical office that I go into. They may be halfway around the world. They may be just one time zone away, but I think it really opens the focus to be about the talent and the cultural fit for the team. So whether that's a freelancer or a full-time remote employee, I think that that's where it's headed. See, I knew that you were going to come up with a rock star answer. <laughs> I wish that I wish that I had 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 you in my ear when they asked me that question last week. And can I also say how impressive it is that you just like ever so coolly and offhandedly you were like, "Yeah, when I did my TEDx talk, like like no big deal, no big thing, it's fine." That was very cool. Way to oh, go. Oh. <laughs> I'm glad you liked that. Yeah. Yeah. No, I love that. Like I aspire to someday be that cool and just like offhandedly mention something super amazing and awesome. Like no big deal. NBD. Right. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so, so I'm going to ask you this and, and I'm, I'm really, really excited. Um, this is one of my favorite questions to ask. So my question is if you could give one piece of advice or for all I care, it could be two or three, but a piece of advice, important advice to someone who's looking to start their career as a freelancer, what would you tell them? I would say, be realistic about how much of it that you really need to do right now. So I know I mentioned earlier this idea of like people feeling like they need to be ready, they need to be qualified, they need to be vetted and all of these kinds of things. There is no harm in you trying out one small project or putting out a call even on your personal Facebook page or LinkedIn page and saying, you know, I'm really testing the waters with freelancing as a proofreader. Does anyone have a resume or cover letter they'd like me to look over, you know, for free or for a really discounted rate to just give you some feedback and make some tweaks? And that way you can test it out. And there's no like lifelong commitment. If you do that for one or two friends or colleagues and you're like, you know what, I really didn't love it. Like that's still valuable information to know, um, but there's nothing that should hold you back from getting started in a small way. I think that even if you ultimately decide, and this has happened with multiple of my freelancing clients, they're like, you know what? I really just want my freelance thing to be a side hustle. And I actually want to get like a full-time remote job. 
awesome. Now let's talk about packaging up all the skills that you have, all the training you've undertaken on your own and make that be a win for an employer. So I think it's so versatile. Even if you just do a couple of projects, it gives you great talking points in an interview. It builds your communication skills. It builds your project management skills. None of those things are bad. So it will serve you in other ways of your life for sure. Yeah, most definitely. Well, so so as most poignant speakers do, um, I had a total different question <laughs> in mind. You said something where I was like, oh, crap, now I have to ask this because I really want to know. Um, so I think that one of the things that I, I have heard time and time again that freelancers struggle with is knowing when they can take something full time. Like they established something as a side hustle. They did their experimentation. They, you know, kind of figured out the process and they've been chugging along doing this as, um, you know, enhancing work or, you know, just to bring in a little bit of cash. At what point do you have that crystallizing moment where you're like, hey, I could quit my day job and do this full time? Yeah. Start watching how you feel about showing up to your day job. That was clue number one for me. Little things that really were not that aggravating before became unbearable. Like the the person in the cubicle next to me who chewed gum with their mouth open all day long. I went from just like, wow, that's annoying to like, I actually want to tear down this cubicle wall and like a bunch of them in the face. And I was like, okay, I'm getting like varying levels of mad here because I'm seeing the benefits of working for myself, I show up in a different way for that. And so when you feel like you're distracted or disinterested, I think that's clue number one. When you have consistent revenue, that's another one. When you're turning down projects on the freelance side, because you literally don't have time to do them. So the demand is there, but you're literally going, you know what, I only have like six hours per week that I can really make this work. And so I can't scale it up any further. Um, ideally, you have a safety net to catch you. So you've signed a big contract with one freelance client, or um, you have had consistent revenue and you've saved some of that money. Um, I did not have anything saved when I left my day job. So I mean, I survived for sure. Like my my business kind of like exploded when I went full time because I'd spent a year building it up. Um, but I do recommend that if you can have that, it will make things easier for you. It will make you kind of less panicked when you leap. Okay. I love that. I love that. And when you are ready to take the leap, or even when you're ready to try out that first project and get experimental, what are the things that you need to have in place in, in order to competently serve a client? Oh, I think you need to have a clear ability to give them some sense of direction. Not every client knows what they want. In the best case scenario, your client is like, yes, I've thought about this. I've researched it. I get everything that goes into it. This is what I want the end product to look like. But you will also have some clients that are like, I have no idea. I know I need a blog or I know I need a brand board. I'm hiring you as the expert to create those things. And so you have to be good at giving them direction and asking the right questions to put them on that path because they don't always know it. Um, and I just think those good communication skills go a long way. You have to be able to communicate well in the written word, but also in the spoken word, you will have phone calls or video calls with your clients. So um, you do need to be prepared to show up professionally and having a good sense of your schedule, I would say is the last one because you clients often don't have firm deadlines in mind or they're they're willing to be pushed a little bit on that. So it's up to you to tell them, no, three days is not enough time to build 
an entire app for a phone. Like that's, there's no way I can do that. Or even three months, you have to educate them about what your process looks like. So you have to speak to that pretty confidently and have a decent sense of your schedule and always build in buffer time. If you're new and you're like, well, I don't know what my schedule is yet. Just build in some buffer time in case life happens or it takes longer than you thought. Yeah, I love that. Well, so Laura, we are coming up on the end of our time together and I'm super bummed. You've been a dream guest. I just want you to know that. Well, thanks. Uh, But so so here is, here's your silly question. Are you ready? Yes, I'm ready. (laughs) Okay. All right. So somebody gives you a million dollars and you have to decide how you're going to spend it. What do you do? Uh, Well, first of all, I'm going to pay off my student loans (laughs) Uh, I I mean, I, I don't, I don't say that just to be like responsible adult, but like just good Lord, not to ever have to think about that again. Um, that would be number one and, um, probably buy my mom a house, but ultimately, um, you know, my husband and I have this kind of like dream of building like a compound farm where, you know, we have our family members around us and we have animals and things like that. So I think that would probably be uh, my next purchase. And then post pandemic, I, there's lots of countries I haven't been to that I want to go to like Greece and Italy. And so um, (laughs) there's a thing called like a a cruise around the world. It's like a six month or nine month thing. I would totally go do that and spare no expense. (laughs) Awesome. I love it. That is such a great answer. I, I It's like a, a three or four pronged attack where you're just like, okay, well, first we do this. First we attend to the practical, but then right. we set ourselves up for the rest of life. And then we have some fun. Like, right. That was, that was a journey that you just took us on in that answer. That was amazing. <laughs> well, you can't enjoy the other stuff if you have like any debt hanging over you. So like, just to be, <laughs> you can be like, oh yeah, totally fine to go blow money after that point. <laughs> But, you know, that was a very multifaceted response. That was, that was great. Um, so so thank you so much. And, and I, I do just have to pop it in here really quickly how much we love Full Scale. Once again, today's episode of Startup Hustle was sponsored by FullScale.io. And please bear in mind that you can find the Startup Hustle podcast on Instagram at Startup Hustle Podcast or check out our YouTube channel. Laura, thank you so much for being here with us today. This has been awesome. I hope that our listeners have learned a lot. I know that I have. Uh, You've been great. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Startup Hustles brought to you by Fullscale.io, helping you build a software team quickly and affordably. Make sure you reach down and hit that subscribe button, then come find us on Instagram. See you next time. We do it.